0: Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 221 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Watt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bolling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer and good friend, Craig
1: Williams. Craig, welcome back and how are you? Hey, welcome back to you as well, and I'm doing pretty okay. How are you? i'm doing well it is
0: nice to be back although i feel like we had a soft opening you know on the podcast cruise
1: 7.0 just a, <laughs> a little bit you know and it eased us eased us all right back in and uh you know really reignited that spark to get back here and and do this so i'm very excited for uh, what whatever content we're going over this summer i know there's probably going to be a lot of good stories a lot of good history and yeah, Maybe we'll learn just a little bit along the way.
0: Maybe we will, yeah. And it was just so nice to meet so many listeners, not only on a podcast cruise, but I spent like over a week pre- and post-cruise at Walt Disney World and bumped into so many wonderful people, came up and said hello. And, you know, never hesitate to say hello because you never know, your interest might spark an idea in me because one of the guests who came up and said hello to me at Epcot, he's, he sparked an idea for a, for a show episode, and he's going to be a guest on the show if it all works out. So there's another reason to say hello to me and Craig,
1: because you just never know. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. you know. Maybe you will also like us more than you previously did, or maybe you'll be like, <laughs> you know what? I was on the fence with Craig, and now I realize I was i was wrong for giving him a chance he's pretty awful (laughs) no not at all not at all i heard
0: nothing but good things about you the folks who came up to talk about the show yeah maybe a couple who knows (laughs) there were more than a couple there were a lot it was very humbling and gratifying um to to uh, meet folks who set aside time every week and um who talk about you know who and it's always so nice when they say that they're they listen to it as a family and that their children listen to it because I feel that we're we're helping people uh you know we're continuing on the legacy of Walt Disney in our own way, helping share his stories and his vision and his creativity and those that he gathered around him uh you know um to the younger generation who didn't grow up seeing him on television every week. So, so I'm very happy to hear those stories um, from folks who walk up to us and all that. But here we are; we are back, uh, sharing a whole new season of stories with you. You know, we just celebrated Memorial Day, and it's not only when we set aside time to honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our country and its liberties. It's also considered the unofficial start of summer in the United States. And then on July 4th, we celebrate the founding of our nation. And Walt Disney considered himself to be a patriot and once said that he had red, white, and blue running through his veins. And Walt even said that the 4th of July was one of his favorite holidays. Well, many of the Disney parks include a Main Street USA and Frontierland, and along with Liberty Square and the Magic Kingdom, tell the story of the founding and establishment of the United States. So when planning Disneyland, Walt did not want guests to see the real world when in the park. He wanted guests to feel as if they were in another world. So Tom Sawyer Island, encircled by the Rivers of America and Frontierland, may be one of Walt's greatest successes in this goal. Now Walt Disney loved the book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So he named the steamship after its author and was inspired by the book's description of Jackson's island when designing the focal point of Frontierland. However, you may be surprised to learn that three years before this island in the middle of Frontierland was designated as Tom Sawyer Island, an idea Walt considered was a Mickey Mouse Club island that would serve as headquarters for Mousketeers. In Herb Ryman's early drawings, this Mickey Mouse Club island would include a treehouse, a cave, and a raft in a cove. Although the island has seen changes for over the decades, children can still run freely whilst exploring the island, and it's big enough for children to get a little lost as they roam the caverns, tunnels, and winding paths. And Tom Sawyer Island may be the only Disneyland attraction where children can't create their own adventure so craig when you visited the magic kingdom as a youth did you
1: enjoy running around tom sawyer island over there oh absolutely uh it was a staple for us when growing up and it wasn't you know it, it wasn't just like a way to tire us out um, that I'm sure a lot of, you know, families, uh, do with their kids where it, it is a really good way. If like, Hey, they're a little rambunctious, let's, let's let them run around the Island for a little bit. That'll help. Uh, for us, it was, it was, you know, a true experience because it was, it was a family experience. You know, my, my dad would be going right through the caves with us. And and so would my mom. And, you know, we would be crossing over the, uh, the, the barrel bridge, and you know bobbing up and down on the the water and just having so much fun with that and you know back back in those days when we would go to to Magic Kingdom that was still when Aunt Polly's was always open and I can have I have fond memories and can remember perfectly of sitting down and having meals at at aunt Polly's, including I, I don't remember if i've talked about it on here or a different show but i i still remember one time when we ate there they had like a little plastic souvenir cup that had like a, a silhouette of cinderella castle on it and we definitely got it there and you know we used it as a as a water cup or milk cup for years and years and years at my house till it probably f- fell apart. But, uh, it was just that, that, that memory always connected back to it. I could remember sitting at Aunt Polly's there and, and having that meal and, and taking home that souvenir that was a memory for, for years and years and years to come. So yeah, I, uh, Tom Sawyer Island is something that was very important to our family vacations and something that I just really, Hold uh, dear in my heart, even though I don't uh, visit it as much these days as I I used to in the past. But I, I still try to go over once every every six months or so to walk around, not not to not to like film anything with it, just to to kind of be over there, because you really are escaping to Tom Sawyer Island. You you have so many parts of it where the outside of the island, the, the other parts of the park from Frontierland to Liberty Square, they're, they're not visible. So you do feel like you're truly lost in that area. And I love that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, when I was little, going over to Tom Sawyer Island was a must do. It was a little different experience for me. You know, I, we were there and we had our cousins there. We ran around. That was a time for the parents to take a break as we ran around, they they sat one of those log benches or something, and they relaxed and chatted and all that as we uh, ran amok on the island. And I do remember one time, I think I slipped and fell. And so I sought out my mother, because I was bleeding and all that. And she always had everything that you ever needed in her purse. And so she went in her purse and had everything she needed to clean me up and put a bandage on me and told me, "No, watch where you're going. (laughs) And that was it. And I, I think now where they had the, you know, years later, they had to change Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland due to all the litigation. And I thought, what a difference in parenting, you know, where when I fell down, my parents just told me, cleaned me up, dusted me off and said, watch where you're going. And now we have parents who sue. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that's so sad. But I do remember um, when I was a teenager visiting Walt Disney World and the Magic Kingdom, eating it at Aunt Polly's as well. And I think they had rocking chairs. They did? There, too. And I remember... I, I don't know, I think we had lemonades or something as well one time, and sat in the rocking chairs and rocked back and forth, and you know looked over at Frontierland and all that, so that was fun and and as we'll get into at Disneyland's Tom Sawyer Island also had a snack bar. Remember we'd get ice cream bars there and stuff like that. so when Disneyland opened on july nineteen fifty five Frontierland was one of the areas not fully developed. Guests could explore the frontier as far as the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad Freight Station and the Swift's Chicken Plantation House, which stood near the location of today's haunted mansion. The brush-covered island in the middle of the Rivers of America was unnamed, somewhat shaped like a dog bone, it was large and round at each end to accommodate the turning radius for the guide rail of the Mark Twain riverboat. And since there was no public access to the island, guests could only get a full view of the island from the top deck of the Mark Twain. However, there wasn't much to look at other than a few trees and three streams which cascaded into the river from Lookout Point at the top of the island's southern hill. Now, a backstory story was written for this area, explaining that many moons ago, lightning struck a tree which grew here on Indian Hill. This lightning strike caused three waterfalls to spring from its roots, and Quote, and the three falls became the headwaters of the rivers of America, unquote. This story was shared in early publicity material and in publications. There were also five small boat docks or inlets for future plans. And a ramshackle fishing shack stood on a crooked wooden pier on a small bay that would later be named Smuggler's Cove. This shack wasn't just for aesthetics. It actually housed the pump that fed the headwaters of the rivers of America. Now, Herb Ryman continued to create rough drawings with proposed additions um, to the island and the shores of the river ride. One sketch listed natural elements like semi-submerged logs or dead trees with moss, a cave up high on a bank and animals like bear, buffaloes, deer, wild turkey, grouse, etc., goat, bighorn, um, rock strata ledges, and some cypress swamp area. Other proposed scenes on the drawing included a fowler's dock and scenery, such as dummy kids sitting fishing. I assume he means um, sort of like uh, just models of kids sitting fishing. A rustic house with lighted windows at night on a high hill. And areas named after Walt's family members that included Lily Bay, Point Diane, and another area named after Sharon. A year after Disneyland opened, over three million guests had visited. And Walt was working on a $2 million expansion of the park that included the Storybook Land Canal Boats, the Skyway, Tomorrowland Astrojets, the Rainbow Caverns Mine Trains, and Tom Sawyer Island. In April of 1956, a large 10-foot sign was put up at the Mark Twain Landing, with a picture of a new, larger frontier land set to open in June. As the park's second summer season approached, newspaper ads were placed announcing, quote, great names from American folklore will be brought alive this summer with the official opening of Tom Sawyer Island. The island until now accessible to Disneyland visitors will provide a slice of living Americana, unquote. Now, Walt always considered the timeline for Frontierland to be from 1790 to 1876, from the post-Revolution era to the Great Southwest Settlement. So within this period, Frontierland would now have a Fowler's Harbor Rivertown area for the Mike Fink keelboats, a New Orleans-style Magnolia Park near the existing Swift's Chicken Plantation House restaurant, a wilderness area with a Native American territory, and the Indian War canoes, and Tom Sawyer Island to complete the Mississippi River theme begun by the Mark Twain Riverboat. According to Disneyland master planner Mark Davis, the island features have been under development since the initial planning of the park. The general shape of the island and the way it curved and the concept of Pirate's Cove were all Walt's ideas. Disneyland's art director for Frontierland, Vic Green, worked with Imagineers Herb Ryman and Claude Coates to create the first designs of the island, which included the barrel bridge and suspension bridge that were built later. Studio illustrator Sam McKim created drawings and construction elevations for the Old Mill, Fort Wilderness and Tom and Huck's treehouse. Disneyland landscaper Bill Evans and his team created a landscaping plan for the island. Walt Disney Studio headset decorator Emil Curie located some second-hand animals from a museum, which were installed at the remote end of the island. All of the Tom Sawyer Island features would be completed in two stages, about a year apart. During the construction, hand-hewn logs were floated across the river and assembled into Fort Wilderness. Skiffs and rafts would transport construction equipment and foliage across the river from Joe's Ditch, which was a Walt called Fowler's Harbor. The old mill was constructed on the island's southern shore and stood as the icon of the island. A millstone would lean against the wall whilst a flume transported water onto the paddles of the giant wooden water wheel. In the second week of June, 1956, kickoff advertisements in Southern California newspapers proclaimed, quote, relive exciting days out of America's lusty past. Explore all the magical mysteries of an island built for fun. Whatever you want to do, you will find Fun and excitement for the whole family at this newest Disneyland attraction. Opening ceremonies for Tom Sawyer Island were held at 12 noon on Saturday, June 16, 1956, at the raft landing on the island. The Disneyland News June 1956 edition gave an advanced description of the opening day ceremonies. This is what they wrote. Friday, June 15th, we'll see two of the new attractions unveiled as Tom Sawyer Island and Storybook Land. will both be open to the public for the first time. On Saturday, official public ceremonies with press representatives and visiting dignitaries will be held on the island. Guests of honor at the island opening are two freckled youngsters from Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri, 12-year-old Chris Chris Winkler and 13-year-old Perva Lou Smith were selected in the local Hannibal contest to choose a modern-day Tom Sawyer and Becky Thatcher, Tom's fictional girlfriend. The youngsters are being flown to Disneyland via TWA, courtesy of Western Printing and Lithograph Company, which has a plant in Hannibal. Chris and Perva will stay at the Disneyland Hotel while here and be honored guests of Disneyland management while in California. So Harold Crawford, plant manager, Hannibal Division of Western Printing and Lithographing Company, handed Chris and Perva plane tickets to Disneyland. And there was a photo of that in the publication. Their transportation to Disneyland was via Tanner Gray Line limousine, and accommodations were at the Knickerbocker Hotel. During the dedication ceremony, youngsters read a proclamation by the governor of Missouri, whereby Tom Sawyer Island was temporarily annexed to the state of Missouri. In another publicity stunt, Phil Connolly, the governor of Missouri, sent a tongue-in-cheek letter to Governor Goodwin Knight of California, asking him to take appropriate action which will cause the Tom Sawyer Island in Disneyland, California, to be deeded to the sovereign state of Missouri, the only true and rightful possessor of any and all Tom Sawyer Islands in the world." During the opening ceremony, Chris Winkler as Tom Sawyer and Perva Lou Smith as Becky Thatcher, along with Walt Disney, christened the raft with a jug of Mississippi water and placed a box of soil from Jackson's Island in Hannibal, Missouri, in a hole near the foot of the raft landing pier. After the ceremony, the the group was the first to tour Injun Joe's Cave, the Fishing Pier, Fort Wilderness, and other features of the island. They then took rafts over to Frontierland and enjoyed an old-fashioned fish fry at the plantation house, for which 38 pounds of river catfish had been flown in from the Mark Twain Hotel in Hannibal, Missouri. During the summer of 1956, two rafts named the Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn took guests from a landing near the Mark Twain Landing over to Tom's Landing in between the Old Mill and the Fishing Pier. Guests could then explore the island and find the flume-driven gristmill, <clears throat> a suspension bridge over Smuggler's Cove on the trail leading the lookout point, and an authentic Fort Wilderness constructed out of hand-hewn logs positioned on the edge of Indian territory. Fort Wilderness was the last stop before heading into untamed and dangerous territory on the northern side of Tom Sawyer's island. The fort was made up of more than 700 hand-hewn, 12-foot-long, 300-pound logs. The fort, designed by Sam McKinn, was based on the log forts built by fur traders and the Army of the 1800s. It would act as both a training post and a garrison designed to both keep the peace and preserve the treaty with the Indians, according to the narration of Disneyland USA, released on December 20th, 1956. It it went on to say, feel free to get yourself familiar with the regimental headquarters as well as all access points and escape routes. You just may see Davy Crockett conferring with Major Jackson in the regimental headquarters. You can survey the territory from the blockhouse towers and lend a hand with a rifle should we face an unfriendly attack. The Disneyland News of June 1956 stated that guests quote, will be able to fire trusty blunderbusses from the parapets of the log-hewn Fort Wilderness, unquote. You could also stock up on rations at the Fort Wilderness snack bar or use the restroom facilities before exploring the rest of the island. At one time, Fort Wilderness was accessible to guests and children, and they could pretend to shoot rifles from the firing ports on the blockhouse. The fort's secret tunnel provided a quick escape. And when the sailing ship Columbia cruised by, the soldiers at the fort would return a salute from the fort's cannon. That always surprised guests as, yes, sailed by. Yeah. (laughs) Maps designed by Herb Ryman and the signs on the island directed guests to areas of the island, including Huckleberry Finn's Fishing Pier, where guests could try their luck using a bamboo fishing pole and a can of worms to catch one of the 15,000 catfish, bluegill, and a perch that had been stocked in the rivers of America. Walt Disney was one of the first on the pier. A newspaper reporter asked Walt if he had any luck, and Walt replied, I caught one a minute ago, but he got away before I could land him. Twelve-year-old Tom Nabby, who had been hired as a Disneyland newsie for the Disneyland News in 1955, was hired for the role of Tom Sawyer and helped guests manage their fishing poles on Tom Sawyer Island. Further on, guests could explore Injun Joe's cave, marked by a pair of flaming torches on either side of the entrance. When the island was first created in 1955, bulldozers moved the excess dirt from the river basin to form a hill on the island, which was named Point Lookout. Injun Joe's cave was built Into this hill, and gave explorers the illusion of climbing down deep within the island as they maneuvered through the twisty, narrow cavern. Injun Joe's cave was described as a quote romantic interpretation of the cave in Samuel Clemens' story, unquote. The cave is approximately 120 feet and begins with six narrow turns before guests enter a large room with two false passages into side chambers. Then comes a split set of trails with crawl spaces and peepholes before encountering a chamber with a bottomless pit, which is actually about seven feet deep. And then guests take five more turns before exiting the cave. Total investments for Disneyland had reached $18,500,000 by 1956. Tom Sawyer Island and its rafts were amongst the attractions that were projected to add a 30 to 40% ride capacity to the park. So Disneyland had grown from 27 original attractions and amusements to 37 and from 11 free shows and exhibits to 17. The burning settler's cabin was added to the island, visible from the Mark Twain riverboat, the Indian war canoes, the Mike Fink keelboats, and the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. The secret of the eternal flames which engulfed the settler's cabin was that the flames came from gas jets and the cabin was made of concrete. There have been a number of backstory changes to the settler's cabin. The original story was the cabin had been set afire by attacking Indians. And due to complaints from Native American groups, the storyline was changed to a moonshiner who still caught fire when he fell asleep in a drunken stupor. In 1977, the fire went out when steps were taken to reduce the park's consumption of natural resources like gas, which affected attractions and decorative aspects of show quality, like the burning settler's cabin. In 1988, the Mark Twain's narration changed the story to of a settler to a moonshiner who was now just passed out in front of his cabin. In the 1990s, the moonshiner's accidental cabin story story cabin fires storyline was completely extinguished, and a Mark Twain narrator said the cabin burnt due to carelessness by the owner. Since 2010, the cabin had been the home of Mike Fink, the king of the keelboats. Although the cabin was replaced with a new one in 2017, when the northern end of the island was redesigned. In 1957, a new island map designed by Claude Coates guided guests to newly added features, including Castle Rock Ridge that guests could climb to get another vantage point of the island, the Pontoon Bridge, and Tom and Huck's Treehouse, noted as the highest land point in Disneyland. Frontierland was expanded to include a tunnel, leading to an Indian village with a trading post and tribal dancing circle. The expansion of Tom Sawyer Island and its increased popularity required the addition of two more rafts named Becky Thatcher and Injun Joe. The rafts are free-floating and not on guide rails. A new raft dock was built near the Plantation House restaurant and took guests to Tom's Landing near the fishing pier. Guests could also take a raft from the Indian Village area to Huck's Landing below Fort Wilderness. Before the launch of the sailing ship Columbia, the rafts would take guests all around the rivers of America when the Mark Twain was in dry dock. The Welcome to Disneyland brochures in 1958 lists the Nesbit Orange Drink Center, located on Tom Sawyer Island as one of Disneyland's refreshment locations. Admission to Tom Sawyer Island was one Jumbo D coupon, the value of 35 cents for one child, the same as the Jungle Cruise, Rainbow Caverns, Mine Train, or the TWA Rocket to the Moons. And 1958, this was the highest ticket in uh, Disneyland. By 1962, Tom Sawyer's Island was a highlight of the guided tour script, which read, Across the river you see Tom Sawyer's Island, a mother's paradise. Here children may spend hours exploring old fort wilderness, rock caves and formations, suspension bridges, and even go fishing. This island may be reached by taking one of Tom's rafts embarking from Fowler's Harbor. There were some additions to the island. Guests could now enjoy enjoy treats at the snack bar inside Fort Wilderness. Also, the unfriendly Indian camp was transformed into a scene of a sacred burial ground. Along with the burning settler's cabin to the north, these vignettes impressed an important ideal to which Disneyland was originally dedicated. They depicted some of the hard facts that created America. To make sure guests knew that not all Indians were hostile, guests could walk to the end of the Frontierland Wilderness Trail, where they would be welcomed by friendly true-life tribal representatives of the Disneyland Indian Village. At the Disneyland Customer Relations Division meeting on July 8, 1964, the possible development of a pavement-type stage for the island was discussed. This stage would showcase special revenue-producing events and other activities. Soon after, it was shared with Disneyland cast members that the cast of Dixieland at Disneyland would appear in All That Jazz, staged on the Rivers of America in Frontierland, with a huge stage being erected on the tip of Tom Sawyer Island for the production number stage and choreographed by Birch Mann. Over the years, jazz performers and bands would perform on this stage, and rock groups would perform during grad nights. This stage on Tom Sawyer Island would eventually become the home of a towering dragon. I remember seeing all those groups when we visited Disneyland, especially at night, Mm -hmm. they would um, perform. There. I think during one special event, I think it was like New Year's Eve or something. I saw the Pointer Sisters oh, something wow. on that stage. That was the days before Disneyland relied on DJs, and they had big name groups um, perform at Disneyland for when like their New Year's Eve party was that was a hard ticketed event
1: and Grad nights and all that. They'd have top groups come in and perform. That see, that would still be so cool today, especially at it uh at Disneyland with Tom Sawyer Island. Uh just having that beautiful area across the way there, if they could actually do concerts like I, I understand why in Walt Disney World that our American adventure uh amphitheater gets used for concerts and and all the events but i there's something that could be so cool about concerts in disneyland even if it exactly. was after hours that take place out there like i would i if it was someone i was interested in i, I would definitely go see it heck i'd probably see it even if it was someone i wasn't interested in just so i could be like yeah i watched yeah. a concert at disneyland on tom sawyer island from across the way
0: yeah, and I don't know who I saw – I think it was like on the – when spa- the Space Mountain stage existed, I think I saw like Tower of Power as someone there. I mean, they had – like I said, they had big groups perform there when they were willing to pay yeah. for yeah.
1: them. And it added so much. No, it's, it's know, an exciting to, thing. I mean, I think that's yeah. why Universal is still so successful with their uh, Universal Mardi Gras concerts that they have every year because – Granted, you know, they don't, they don't always get every single name is a big name, but uh, they definitely attract larger than the nostalgic bands that Walt Disney World goes for mm-hmm. with, with their uh, performers during festival times. I mean, it's it, just cause it's two different levels. Disney just needs to fill that small little, that small little theater, whereas Universal wants to make sure that they fill a, giant giant area in front of their stage Mm. so just two two different levels but um yeah i there's something about watching concerts in theme parks that it's just it's enjoyable Mm -hmm. i agree with you yeah well in
0: 1991 the old mill was torn down as part of the construction for phantasmic a new grist mill was constructed where the bait shack used to be. In the area behind where the river stage was, a new cider mill was constructed to house an electrical equipment room the show equipment and an HVAC um, for Phantasmic. The river stage was torn out and a brand new stage was built and hydraulic lifts to raise both Mickey Mouse to the stage level and Maleficent to 32 feet in the air were installed. In 1992, Tom Sawyer Island became the stage for Disneyland's nighttime spectacular Fantasmic. So guests can explore the island by day only to see it and the rivers of America transformed at night into one of the park's most amazing shows. I think this is one of the reasons Disneyland's Fantasmic is so magical because during the day you're roaming around the park, you're climbing all over, Tom Sawyer Island on that stage for a while. When it when they transformed it into pirate's lair, there were pirate performers and a pirate band on that stage. And then at night, everything changes. Yeah, and it, it's it's a completely different environment, and you um, it is so it's not like it's it's a special amphitheater built for the show, which is nice because you have a seat granted yeah but it's just that that transformation of that area of the park is so incredible
1: you know it's it's also because it is a perfect stage for the show the theming i i know it it seems so weird to be like yeah the the theming of like uh you know uh island near the mississippi river like that's that's the perfect place to have mickey and a bunch of disney characters um all all placed around but oddly enough the look of it does completely fit the show and uh, more so than i think just a a completely open and overly large amphitheater it just it's it allows that closeness and that intimacy and into the show and like i i will admit when the first time i saw disneyland's fantasmic in 2013 blown away and it, it from then on just walt disney world was completely ruined for me and not that not that i ever truly liked walt disney worlds that much i was never really a huge fan of it but i became a fan of phantasmic because of the disneyland one but That was 2013. It took me, I think, until 2017 or 2018 to finally go over to Tom Sawyer Island in Disneyland. Just because I always had so many things on my list, it was always very low priority, so I never made it over. So the first time I went over, and I actually got to walk on the same, like that same area, that stage where everything happens in Fantasmic. I was, it 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 changed the show for me even then beyond that point it was it was the next evolution for me in adoring that show that literally during the day you can just walk around on there like it's mm-hmm. absolutely nothing big is going to happen there later but you know if you know the show it, it just feels special standing yeah. on there
0: absolutely and they hide everything you would never know there's a big huge show where as they advertised when the show first opened the river comes alive You would never know any of that happens. Not at all. That's the amazing thing. And I always had so much fun when, um, like when I I was in line waiting for a parade or fireworks and I start chatting with families, with children who, it's their first visit to Disneyland and I would love to tell them, you know, there's a dragon that lives here at Disneyland. And they go, what? And I go, it's over at Tom Sawyer Island. That stage, there's a dragon that sleeps under there, and then at night it comes out. Because that, you know, those are especially the days, and you didn't have to get reservations yeah. and all that. You could walk up to Fantastic, and they, they would be so blown away. And, and sometimes I'd see them later on. I said, "Did you see the dragons?" You fantastic. Like, yes, and they were, you know, just that, that was just so magical for them, and all that. So um yeah, it's it's really cool. Yeah. So. Well, by the early 2000s, Fort Wilderness's age began the show due to the rigors of the environment, the wear and tear by guests over the decades, and neglect from park management. An accident in which a six-year-old girl lost part of her finger whilst playing with one of the mock rifles and resulting in a lawsuit was the original Fort's final story. Fort Wilderness closed its gates in 2003, and a smaller shell version constructed from milled logs stands in its place today and is used as a staging area for phantasmic and is no longer accessible to guests. With the closure of its biggest attraction, Fort Wilderness, fewer guests visited the island. Disneyland executives needed to bring something new and exciting to the island to generate new interest. Well, one of the park's most popular attractions, Pirates of the Caribbean, would be The Answer. The attraction had inspired a 2003 film that had been a hit with audiences, so Imagineers saw the opportunity to connect Tom Sawyer Island with the Pirates of the Caribbean attractions and films. In 2007, Tom Sawyer Island was rethemed to Pirate's Lair on Tom Sawyer Island with new grottos, buried treasure, a shipwreck, and the remains of pirates for guests to uncover. The backstory of the retheming connected it back to Tom Sawyer Island based on a chapter from the book in which Tom, Huck, and Joe Harper go to an island and play pirates, suggesting that the new elements of Pirate's Lair are part of their imaginative play. In what was a controversial act for many fans of Walt Disney and Disneyland at the time, the north end of the island was reduced and reshaped in 2016 and 2017 to make room for Galaxy's Edge and a new route and trestle for the Disneyland railroads. Show scenes were reimagined along the river's edge to accommodate the shoreline changes. Uh I remember when this started, it was... How could you they change the island that Walt Disney personally had designed? This was a this was a big deal out in Disneyland.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, uh, for a very good reason because mm-hmm. it it did completely change that part of the park and the excitingness not only of of you know riding the sailing ship Columbia and the Mark Twain, but it also for people who loved uh Tom Sawyer Island and I wish I would have had a chance to experience it prior to the reshaping but I I, I didn't however I will say with that going off what we just talked about before with Pirates Lair uh well I didn't think the first time I saw Tom Sawyer Island and Pirates Lair I was like you know I don't really care for this that much but it does fit in so I can't be like super upset about it but uh, I don't it part of it just it felt like too much pirates but again that's i i didn't see it until whenever 2017 or 2018 so yeah i i feel like pirates has just gotten progressively more and more beaten down into us uh, as the years have gone on but back in 2007 it probably would have been a lot more exciting but uh between having pirates layer on there and then also changing the shape of the island and affecting those other attractions it was it was a lot to handle in a in a very short amount of time and you know what though ultimately the, the experience of still riding those ships around uh, around Tom Sawyer Island, it is it's, it's still special. And what they did with the train and mm-hmm. how they themed all that area, it did come out beautifully. But they did, yeah, they did a nice job with the show scene. So they don't understand why
0: the Indian shaman is way up yeah. <laughs> by himself. Because I thought, I don't know who's listening to him. <laughs> yeah. He's talking to the wind up there. But, and that's the big difference between. Disneyland and Walt Disney World, you know, I've talked about this. There are no show scenes for, um, the Lily Bell for, mm-hmm. uh, as they go through the rivers of America, the Magic Kingdom. There is lots of stuff to look at, um, as you ride the Mark Twain or the sailing ship Columbia at, on, on at Disneyland's rivers of America. Yeah. So if definitely, if you're a first timer to Disneyland or just have never ridden it, um, because you've, n- maybe because you've experienced the, the, Liberty Bell version of Rivers of America. You've got to you've got to ride Disneyland. So yeah. It's it's a whole it will just open
1: your eyes yeah. wide. It's it's way to, more fleshed out in yeah. in Disneyland. Not that it's it's not terrible in Walt Disney World. I mean, you are very right. It, it, it's bare. It's bare in comparison. But you know, like mm-hmm. I, I still like ours because we do have the, uh the shack with the man that you can also mm-hmm. see in Your Pirates of the Caribbean, and mm-hmm. there's still some animals, and you know, it's it, it's got it it's got its its charming moments, but it it doesn't feel as natural as Disneyland's does still. But yeah. I think it's also a thing, too, where, unfortunately, I feel like visitors of Disneyland care more about the Mark Twain than Walt Disney World visitors care about the Liberty Bell.
0: Well, I, and I I think it just goes back to what I was saying. There's Riding the Mark Twain is a show. It's an attraction. Yep. And I feel less so for the Liberty Bell.
1: Yeah. it's In the Liberty and, Bell, I feel like people treat it as, I'm tired and I need to take a break. And mm-hmm. so let's just go ride the boat around. Not like… Hey, let's actually let's actually do this and enjoy the entire experience. I mean it's something something that I do because I, I truly I love the Liberty Bell. I, I, I think there's there's something special with it. But um, you know, if, if I had the choice between the Liberty Bell here or jumping on the uh, the the sailing ship Columbia, I'm taking the sailing ship Columbia all the way. Oh, yes. The so Columbia is really special with its museum
0: yep. below decks and all that. That is a unique, unique. And, you know, when they shortened the Rivers of America experience for Galaxy's Edge, people were worried one of the, one of the ships was going to be dry docked. That was all part of the controversy because they cut the time pretty significantly for the sail around.
1: But no, they're still managing to sail both of them, which is wonderful. Yep. And so. it's always, always nice to do both because they are truly both unique experiences mm-hmm. while you're getting, the same look at tom sawyer island it's just it is two different attractions right and the narration's different on both
0: ships yep to to go with the era uh, and experience of those ships Mm -hmm. yeah Anyway, well, Walt Disney's vision heavily influenced the design of Tom Sawyer Island, as well as the placement of many of its features. And Jack Lindquist, former president of Disneyland, recalled in an interview with Disneyland Line magazine in 1993. He said, when we were building Tom Sawyer Island, we went over to the island when the fort was about 75 percent complete. Walt looked at it and said, That one wall of the stockade, it's not where it should be. It needs to go about 12 feet west. We were all puzzled, but they moved it. Then in 1971, I was sitting and talking with Roy Disney. For some reason, I told Roy, and he said, Walt knew it was wrong because when we were growing up in Marceline, there was a little sand spit about 20 to 30 feet offshore. Walt was about 10 years old, and we would build a little raft and go out there, and we took old pieces of scrap wood and cardboard, and we built a fort. And Walt knew just where he wanted everything to go. So you see, Tom Sawyer Island was that sand spit. Now, I believe that when Walt was 10, he saw what Tom Sawyer Island should be. And when we were building Tom Sawyer Island, he saw what he remembered from when he was 10. And Jack Lindquist said, that's my favorite story about Walt Disney, because it tells us so much about the vision and creativity of the man and the ability to look at the world like a child looks at the world. Walt never lost that ability. And you know, when I heard this story, this gave me a completely new appreciation for Tom Sawyer Island. Yeah. Absolutely, and and how special it is, and and also the one at Walt Disney World because we were talking before the show, Craig, how Walt Disney World is unchanged mm-hmm. from the day it opened, yeah, and that. It has mu- and it has much of those original elements that were designed for the original Disneyland Tom Sawyer Island. So th- so for our guests, maybe our Disneylanders
1: who've never been to the Magic Kingdom one, what's still there? What, what's there? I mean, a big one that we obviously covered in this one, but uh, we still have full access to our fort, which was mm-hmm. not Fort Wilderness out here. Uh, out here is Fort Langhorn. It was Fort Samuel Clemens when it opened. And then I think it was sometime around when Tom and Huck came out that they renamed it to kind of sync up with the movie, but I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but um i i know as of right now it is fort langhorn and not only do we still have it but it even got a little bit of uh tlc uh back in i believe it was 2021 maybe maybe late 2020 but somewhere in that time period i mean they they went through and just tried to freshen up the area and everything in it because it, it's not it like you think of it as just a fort and when you're walking up to it it yeah, it looks like a fort. What, what could be exciting? I mean, there's legitimate animatronics inside, like not, not fancy, exciting ones, uh, stationary ones. But with it, it's, you know, you have, you have men who are standing in the stables with the horses. There is a, uh, there's a prisoner who is in the fort too, because you have to have that. So he's, I, or it might be the, uh, the person guarding. The fort as well, too, but there's a there's a person lying asleep in bed. You still have um, cannons and rifles that you can aim towards uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in there, which always seems kind of dark. But, you know, I will fully admit I've done it many times <laughs> over the, mm-hmm. the years. And then you can even escape out of the fort by going through uh, one of the caves that's under uh, oh, so you have the, the secret escape tunnel too exactly oh, that's so cool it's It's really neat that we have. All of that together, and you know, then uh, all the classic stuff is and still on ours as well too, like the Barrel Bridge that I already mentioned, and uh the other the other bridge that you have to cross along the way to get to the fort, the Superstition Bridge. Uh, I love that we have Harper's Mill on there, even though they they painted over the Harper's Mill signage, and now it's just the mill standing in there. But you know, you walk inside and and the owls in there and it's just this like it's this cute little walkthrough that you feel uh, again i used it once before but you just feel really immersed when you're in there and throughout the island and there's so many paths right whenever you you land at the landing and you you start your adventure around i mean there's basically two different directions you can take that splits into three different directions and you can just get lost so quickly in there without even having to go through the caves, which, you know, I don't do very often because I've gotten wider as I've gotten older. And so it's a little bit harder uh, for me on top of the fact that I'm tall, but uh, I, it, it just, it has all of the charm without the pirates aspects to it. So I, I think it definitely if you're, if you're a Disneylander, you have to make time for our Tom Sawyer Island and the entire the the full length of it, that 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 full experience that you just can't get at Disneyland anymore. It's still it's alive and well here in Walt Disney World.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's definitely on my must do list next time I'm out there. Well, the island has gone through a few changes over the decades. Uh, Rafts now depart from a dock not far from the Haunted Mansion and land near the old Injun Joe's Cave. Much of the fishing pier in catfish cove is gone. The original old mill has been replaced with a cider mill which was part of the installation for Phantasmic. The suspension and pontoon bridges remain. always love to scare my kids and Carol on those because I've rocked them back and forth and so. Yeah. Um, but Merry-Go-Round Rock and Teeter-Totter Rock were removed for safety reasons. I loved those when I was a boy. Tom and Huck's treehouse remains, but the steps allowing guests to climb up into the treehouse for a view of the island in Frontierland were removed in 2017. Injun Joe's cave is now Dead Man's Grotto. Harper's Mill is now Lafitte's Tavern at Pirate's Point, which houses much of the equipment for Phantasmic. A shipwreck is now in Smuggler's Cove. But children can still scramble around and explore the island and the island's multiple levels and out-of-the-way spots provide opportunities for children to get rid of some energy as parents can relax on a wooden crate or a log bench. The island remains a tribute to Walt Disney's original vision for Frontierland and incorporates thematic elements from the popular Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise. But it is still a wonderful place to relax, explore, and connect with Walt. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. All right, Craig. Well, how about to make it easy for me to try to remember
1: week to week? Should I start I here with mine? <laughs> that is perfectly fine with me. I was just deep down really hoping that you weren't going to say, so, Craig, do you remember who went first last time? Because I don't. <laughs> I don't remember either. So,
0: All right. Well, this week, I'm going to go back to June 10th, 1994. And because this reminds me of so many stories I've heard about this woman, Thelma Howard. She was the Disney family's live-in housekeeper and cook for 30 years. She started with them in 1951 at the age of 38. And she passed away on June 10th, 1994, just a little shy of her 80th birthday. Now, she was nicknamed Fufu because um, one of the Disney children could not pronounce Thelma. Walt often referred to her as the real-life Mary Poppins, and she was wonderful because she had, you know, Walt Walt would always complain, you know, you never cook anything I like, so she made Walt write a list of what he would like to eat, and she kept that list, and that list is on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And, um, but there's all kinds, of, the, the, there's all kinds of wonderful stories that I've heard the Disney family tell over the years. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, that, and stories have been written about her. And, um, Marcy Karika Smothers have shared stories about her even on this show. And, One of the interesting things is as a housekeeper for the Disney family, she received a few shares of Disney stock as Christmas gifts and birthdays and special events. Well, she lived very frugally throughout her life. I believe she had a child who was a special needs child that she raised and took care of. And she felt it would be disloyal to sell the stock because... They were gifts from Walt and the family. So she never sold the stock. Well, she always sent Christmas cards to Diane Disney Miller. And I heard this story from Diane Disney Miller. Um, one day, one Christmas, Diane Disney Miller realized she didn't get a card from Fufu, from Thelma. And she did a little digging and found out that uh, was um, Thelma was now in a nursing home. And she had always sent um, flowers also to Thelma for different occasions and all that as well. And so she did a little digging and found out where she lived. And Diane Disney Miller was not satisfied, let's say, with the nursing home that Thelma had selected, or um, because Thelma lived very frugally. And so Diane Disney Miller um, found a a place that Diane was happy with, and paid for it for the rest of Thelma's life until she passed. Well, when she passed, the stock was found in her belongings. Thelma was a multimillionaire when she passed away because the stock had risen so much in value. And so, um, I, I, believe then this, the, the funds and the stock were used was to set up a fund. I can't remember the name of the, what the fund was for, but I think it was to care for, um, special needs children of some sort. And, um, but there's wonderful stories about the different dishes that she made and cookies and treats that she made that just became part of the family's traditions over the years. And she had special recipes that they loved and tried to copy and and all of that. So she was very much beloved and respected by the Disney family. And I just think for Dan Disney Miller, you know, to take care of Thelma at the end of her life, I just think shows not only how beloved Thelma was by the family, again, just shows the character
1: of the Disney family, you know, as well. Yeah, and, it, and you know no it, it kind of reminds me too of like how uh, not on the the same level as thelma but i know that uh that elvis's uh personal chef that he had uh i think it was like mary langston or something similar to that like he treated her also very similarly uh nice and you know bought her a house just because like she was the best cook that he had and just constantly drove her nuts around the clock with the peanut butter and banana sandwiches and <laughs> um you know making sure that he he would get his unhealthy food hot dogs and and such when you know his health uh started uh, not going in a great direction and he started gaining weight so it's uh, i I I like it from that aspect that you know back in the back in those days 50s 60s um you know it's it, it, these extra relationships were formed you know especially around food it's like it's kind of endearing <laughs> to know that they weren't treated just like hey you make me food thank you it's like almost family members in that way right i agree and i think that they, they did consider
0: Thelma one of the family so which i think which is why i think dan disney miller did what she did very anyway, nice. so I
1: just thought that was just a lovely story. Yep. No, it is. Much more lovely than mine. Mine's, mine's boring. So, um, I, I just feel like I have to talk about it since I was recently at Disneyland, but mine's a, a two day, uh, journey because on June 5th of 2010, the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World officially lost Spectra Magic forever. Endeavor and ever, and we still miss it to this day. But mm-hmm. then on June 6th, <laughs> it all was made well with losing Spectro Magic, not in many people's minds, including mine, but uh, the Main Street Electrical Parade decided to return uh, for yet another time at Walt Disney World. And I only bring it up because I was just in California and I. Had a chance to watch, uh, the Main Street Electrical Parade in its, its new form with its, its new ending that was, was added, uh, with this time coming back. And, you know, it, it ran for much too long at Walt Disney World. And I mean, there's just no beating around the bush at it. But I, I will say, at least as of right now, I feel like they have added some life back into the parade at Disneyland. And there is something truly special about watching the main street electrical parade at Disneyland, even when it's not on main street and you're stuck back by it's a small world because it's the only place you can actually find a, a spot to watch it. But uh, it, it, it does have a little bit of life kicked back up in it. And uh, there, there's something very magical about it, but I will never, never forgive it killing off Spectrum Magic. And Yeah, that parade just seems
0: it just has a... it's like a cat. It has way more than nine lives. Yeah. So. But I know that I know they changed the Salute to America to Did you like the new ending with the where they scrunched in all the
1: um more recent films with the It's a Small World style dolls. Yes. I, I actually thought it was really pretty. It was cute and you know they try they to They try to pigeonhole the music into it, and it 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 doesn't hit that well for me. It it clearly like for someone who has never seen the show before, I think they would even walk into it and be like, "Something's like this is new, right?" And that's without even seeing like the (laughs) the encanto uh, dolls on there as well, too. It's just you can tell it doesn't fit in with the rest of the parade. However. If they were to want to update other portions of the parade with that new ending section and kind of go off that style, I-, I would also be all there for it. But, you know, it's, it is, it's a, it's a little bit jarring when you do go from, uh, having Pete and Elliot and that entire experience and, and Elliot disappearing. I mean, that's, that's so, just it's so special and then to go into pinocchio and then go into the small world dolls it's it does feel like you know it feels out of place in that way but still works and i think there's no photos or videos that will do it justice you kind of have to just see it in person to really really take it all in but Mm -hmm. um it wasn't it wasn't i was expecting the worst with it and i was you know, I, I love listening to Baroque down. I just, I enjoy so much about it, but the experience of watching parades at Disneyland can sometimes be just so frustrating with the, the big gaps in the parade to allow people to cross the pathways. And, you know, it, it, it held me. It held me to the point that I was like, I wish I had, had one more chance to watch the parade while I was here. And I didn't, but uh, it's, yep, I I recommend, I recommend, uh, you know, grabbing a spot.
0: I hope to be out of Disneyland
1: in August, so I hope to see it then. Hopefully the hype um, dies down by then, mm -hmm. because right now people are still losing their minds about it. And it feels like, it feels like Disneyland back in the point, you know, when they, things were out of control and they finally were trying to stop people from camping out ridiculously long amounts of times even though it's always still happening with it 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 feels like that again because of main street electrical parade and it's wild
0: well and also the day we're recording this is also the uh, the the official date that we celebrate the anniversary of the diz and it is 25 years since the the launch of the disc so congratulations to pete werner and john magi and if they 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 had a special um podcast the walt disney world show today to commemorate it so so 25 years there are a lot of shows that i listened to years ago that are long gone that didn't now, the now the Walt Disney World shows sixteen years. Yeah, but there's a lot of sites and all that that are long gone that never
1: can't even approach that. Exactly. I mean, they in the Disney realm. I mean, basically the the original of the core one, at least what I remember, because we we got our first computer in 1990. 1990- Maybe ninety five or ninety six. I mean, it was a Windows ninety five machine, and it was a, a compact Persario. I just don't remember the exact year, but you know, we got on the internet probably around ninety eight ish. I'm gonna say, then because you know, our first computer didn't have a modem in it, so we had to spend the extra money to get that. So I feel like I started looking at Disney websites pretty early on in that way, and I can remember you know back then i remember uh the diz and i remember intercot and all oh, Mears, i remember intercot and yeah. it's you know they're they're all those three in particular are still around to this day which is is wild to me but i i mean there's other things that i'm a fan of that have not made it that long and didn't start pre 2000 you know they mm-hmm. started they started in the late 2000s and you know, couldn't even survive through 2020. And so uh it is, it's a testament to, to the people who have visited the sites over the years. And then, you know, obviously Pete and John branched off with dreams and Pete created the podcast and all the different creations that have come that have helped give the Diz life. So it's, it, it's wild that it's still around and it's wild that, we're able to be a part of it
0: absolutely
1: keep and
0: this keeps growing and growing which is wonderful yeah I got we got our first computer I got mine like 8889 and that's when I first started discovering the Disney message boards and you know things that like, I'm prodigy you know and stuff like that so um yeah so and Diz was one of the first boards when then the, the forum started this was one of the first ones I ever saw so yeah anyway, yeah amazing amazing so yeah and i just started out as a fan and was very fortunate enough and i've told the story before very fortunate enough to um become a part of the Diz. so feel very blessed yeah and grateful to be a part of it so anyway we're just coming off podcast crew 7.0 is there anything more you wanted to say or share about that Oh, I, I
1: don't think I have a lot to say. I mean, I just—it was great getting a chance to meet everyone that uh, we had a chance to meet. I, I always I feel terrible with some of these things because, like this one in particular, I feel like a lot of the times where I was able to see and meet people was. Around you know the podcast day and the Jody Benson concert day, and of like the two days that I had to work, and was really wrapped up with trying to make them uh, come out come out spectacularly. And you know the podcast, I was very happy with how it turned out and thought that it it looked good, uh, the finished project uh, product that went up on YouTube with it. I, I thought it thought it came out nicely and. Uh, you know, the, the thing that I'm bummed about that I, I have gotten a lot of questions about is, uh, people who were on the, the ship who went to the Jody Benson concert. They all obviously mm-hmm. got to experience it and knew that I was recording and just been hoping that we'd be able to release it. But, uh, unfortunately, Jody only wanted uh three particular songs recorded one that her daughter delaney sang one Mm -hmm. that her husband sang and then a duet she did with her daughter delaney she insisted on those ones being the only ones being recorded and just because she wanted those for her family but she didn't want anything else professionally done and insisted on it not happening because she has enough videos of her through the years and doesn't need anyone out there now as (laughs) she's you know as she's she's getting older and isn't necessarily able to sing some of the songs that she used to back in the day oh
0: i thought she did a fantastic job and oh my gosh her daughter and her husband yeah they should do a show together or cut a cd or, or do something and, and I know her son I, I know he plays the piano, I don't know what else he does. Get him in there too. Yeah. And and, and I guess his fiance, well, by now, wife. I think or almost wife this, this weekend. weekend.
1: If yeah. yeah, if I remember correctly.
0: She's in entertainment too. Get her in there too. But um I mean oh I've got, I, I'm seriously thinking, because she and her daughter are going to be a gypsy at what,
1: Fort Myers? I believe really, that's what they said. Yeah. I'm really seriously considering coming out there for it. Yeah, it could be. It could be excellent. And yeah. you know South Florida. You get a tan. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to South Florida. It? Yeah. No.
0: But, um anyway. So now have you seen oh now we now gotta go into some of the stuff we might have watched during um during the hiatus Um, Did you see Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness? I did. Yeah, and what are your thoughts? Well, I don't want to do any spoilers because some people might be waiting for it to stream. Yeah, what what were your thoughts? I saw
1: it on the ship. I I didn't care for it really. Um, it's and, and I like Doctor Strange. I, I do too. like Wanda, and I thought America was a fantastic uh, new character in addition to the movie. I just I don't think I like Sam Raimi's style of directing and i don't think it was well written so it it just kind of it it was a mess for me like i i will watch it again once when i'm doing like a big marvel rewatch but it's one that i don't i will not see myself going to it over and over and over again yeah i don't hope it's the last i see of any of the characters but also i'm not gonna watch it to be like yes I have to watch Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because it is the absolute best Doctor Strange appearance. It's it's not even close to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And um, some of it just didn't make sense to me. In that, I felt with where Wanda Vi- and I have to be very careful because I want to ruin it. I felt where R- Wanda Vision ended, and where we left Wanda and. The plight or the situation with her two sons, it didn't make sense to me where we picked up that story. No. If you're getting my drift.
1: It it did not. No, and I, I know I, I I mean, it's unfortunately we we don't have DizPop or anything anymore on our network, <laughs> but uh Rhino and I still do movie reviews and such and tv show reviews on our patreon at our five dollar tier and we have an episode that i believe as of when this is released our our multiverse of madness uh, episodes finally out there and we talk about this at length where i there are a lot of people who are the the particular plot point you're talking about there's a lot of people defending it saying like no it it clearly, if you couldn't tell that that was going to happen, then you didn't pay enough attention to the very ending of WandaVision. But Except- at the same time, it was sloppy. It was, that's where I'm saying with the writing of it, it was, to me, it was sloppy. It was assuming that you would just be like, Oh, then Wanda shows up and it all happened. So I can assume that this is what happened between then and now. And that's not, that's not necessarily something you should rely on you tell the story tell give give a reason for why it happened the way it did just don't thrust it in
0: yeah because when we left we thought the boys were in peril when we left wandavision if they were in peril in dr strange and multiverse of madness that was not apparent to me And if they were in peril, that might have explained why she was a psychotic mass murderer. (laughs) And And that's um, where we'll end
1: the spoilers on it. um, No, it's – yeah. There there was a big jump. A big jump. And I feel like because of the jump, it disconnected me very quickly and (laughs) – I, it's it had its moments it had its really fun moments in it but ultimately it's just that it's a middle tier marvel movie yeah, for me it's I, not, the worst, just, not the worst yeah but i agree with you the writing was poor and if there was something cut
0: that explained it they need to put it in the director's edition or something yeah. um i don't know now moon knight on um disney plus they uh, i've only seen the first two episodes i downloaded them onto my ipad to watch and so, I haven't seen, oh, when I flew out to Orlando and back, so I haven't um, seen
1: the full series. Have you seen the full series? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh- so... Watched it all through and also not, I'm not trying to push our Patreon because we don't do that usually on, on this show or anywhere else, but we did, we did a full series on that, breaking down and recapping each episode and giving our oh, thoughts on it. Okay. And I've missed all this. I got to look this up. It's yeah, we had a <laughs> lot, a lot, but, um, we, uh, I, I, will, I won't say we and speak for Rhino. I, in particular, with it, I thought it was a fun show and I I will rewatch it at some point in the future. To me it didn't hit like some of the other Marvel shows did, but uh, as you could probably tell in the first couple episodes, uh, Oscar Isaac is just a fantastic, brilliant actor. He is. And, and it's I liked the first
0: I like the first two episodes. I have no idea where this is going, but I'm looking forward yeah. to watching the rest of it and i've not started obi-wan
1: yet so i can't say anything about it i gotta get some moon knight yeah for me moon knight starts on the high and it just kind of goes a little bit down towards the end but it's still uh, it's it's a fun watch and Mm -hmm. something that I, i recommend if people are on the fence even if it has nothing to do with the greater marvel cinematic universe which we think that it he is going to pop up at some point in time in the future, but not in like a, a massive way. But it, it's still it's still worth um, worth jumping into for sure. Okay, good.
0: And then uh, the live action Pinocchio trailer with Tom Hanks as Geppetto is dropped. So have you seen that? Yes. <laughs> now, uh, Pinocchio is my favorite classic animated film, so I'm going to be. Really hypercritical of this. Everyone went nuts on, on social media and all that. I missed something along the way here because I was not impressed with it. I, I think the CG for, for, um, Jiminy Cricket was terrible. And this, I thought, and the the blue fairy scared me. So. I mean and um i don't know and i thought why do we need this what what is this going to add to the story just doing a live action version so i'm not impressed with it so yeah. far
1: we we have to see where it goes from there obviously the trailer I, i'm surprised you said people were excited about it from what i saw i i actually didn't see a lot of people talking about it mm-hmm. uh I I was not impressed by it. I mean obviously Tom Hanks is in it and Pinocchio is also probably my favorite classic uh movie, so of course I'm going to watch it, but I just something nothing jumped out that impressed me with the trailer and said, Oh, this is why I need to watch it and mm-hmm. I'll I'll give everything a shot because I think it, it's Cynthia Revo that's the blue fairy, right? I I have no idea. I just
0: thought, what the hell is that? And then, because the Blue Fairy looked bald, and I thought she looked yeah, menacing. It's,
1: yeah, it, Cynthia Revo, And I mean, she has short hair in general, so I think with... The, and usually her hair is, you know, in just regular life, her hair is usually, like, uh, blonde. So mm-hmm. I believe that I maybe it's because of the fact that she's a blue fairy that with if they used her natural well not natural i believe it's dyed blonde hair but maybe that's why it's you know it all just looks so extra blue with it but i mean cynthia erivo is a phenomenal actor and so i think she's you know everything i've seen her in she is just out of this world and um i'm sure they got her solely to sing when you wish upon a star and that's part of the reason why. So I I look forward to to seeing how she takes on and transforms that. And you know I'm interested in Tom Hanks's uh, his accent that he's going to do. for Oh this. yeah, well even in the
0: animated film, the Geppetto accent was questionable. Yeah. But I thought the set decoration was really good. Yeah, yeah, for it. But um, and of course the one person they don't show is Pinocchio.
1: so that'll come in next trailer i assume yeah you know you gotta leave some some for something but if tom like uh, i need to hear more tom hanks because if he goes full-blown italian accent this will be the second accent that he does in a movie in 2022 with the first being his uh colonel tom in the elvis movie that a lot of people jumped on has that Um, been released it hasn't been released yet but uh, it did debut at Cannes and okay. that was one of the big criticisms that people had with it is that uh, Tom Hanks is not necessarily his performance, but the accent and everything he chose, which is from everything, uh, you know, I'm a big Elvis person. So I, everything I've seen from it, it seems like an accurate representation of who the person is, but it does seem a little off putting. So if we have two, Weird Tom Hanks accents in 2022. Like it, it could be, it could be a very good year for us.
0: All, all I heard about him in the Elvis film was that he gained weight. That's the only comment
1: I've heard so far. Yeah,
0: because he's Colonel Parker, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elvis's yeah. stalwart even... manager who didn't steer him wrong at any step of the way. I heard that the actor that portrayed um, Mr. Haney
0: in Green Acres based. Mr. Haney's character on Colonel Tom Parker I, because they had met uh, Wow, I didn't time. know that Yeah, yeah, I, I heard it in an interview and they, they had met when um, working like in a carnival or something at, uh, in their younger days and so I guess Colonel Parker impressed him so much Mr. Haney was based on that on huh, him That checks out Yeah <laughs> <So. laughs> <laughs> anyway and then now i know this next one i don't know if it's a a disney film or a disney plus series but winnie the pooh blood and honey
1: what do you know about this one greg i don't <laughs> know i i saw someone post something about it i think it's just now oh, that it's... winnie the pooh is in the yeah uh, now domain. that the public domain i think someone's just doing something goofy with it but oh they are this yeah. is crazy this is crazy they've released fil- uh, this is not a disney
0: film They've released photos and all this stuff, but apparently um, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet go feral when Christopher Robin goes off to college and doesn't feed them anymore. So apparently they go on a hunting
1: spree, shall we say. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And this is why people want – they don't necessarily want uh, the copyright laws to be extended again in the future – uh, but at the same time, people do want to know that there is some protection <laughs> for some beloved characters.
0: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so so look for that coming to a um, low, low rent theater near you. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. Well, I use several resources for this episode. Books and magazines, the e-ticket magazine number 37 on Tom Sawyer Island. A historical tour of Walt Disney World volume three by Andrew Kiste. Some websites and articles uh, the Wikipedia page on Tom Sawyer Island. Disney History 101 on Tom Sawyer Island had a lot of nice vintage photos on that one. And Duchess of Disneyland on the waterfront, the story of Tom Sawyer Island. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you?
1: Uh, As always, you can follow me on all the different shows that I do on our podcast network. And you can find me on social media uh, at Teleclaster on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then you can email me, craig at disneyinfo.com. But what about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at
0: WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling-ConnectingWithWalt. That's where I put all my Disney content. Um, Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at com, And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible.